This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country. I've just stepped aboard what's called a rib, a rigid inflatable boat, and there's a, a palpable sense of anticipation. Um, the skipper, Sarah Pern, is just uh, casting off the rope before the engines rev up and uh, render speaking almost impossible. I should point out that Open Country this week has come to the Murray Firth on the east of Scotland and we're here to see why uh, it is that Britain's big sea creatures exert such a, a hold on us, why they pull us and not just in the good times, the times that speed the heart and quicken the breath, but also the, the sad times. Just a couple of weeks ago, of course, uh, a whole pod of pilot whales stranded on a beach south of here in Fife. So the dolphins we have here are the biggest, fattest dolphins you would see anywhere in the world. So you're looking for something that's about three and a half to four metres in length, about 350 kilos. So you find even if they're just surfacing quietly, they'll show quite a bit of the body. You'll see a good bit of the fin in the back, or you'll just see a big splash if they're jumping and landing. We tend to see them in groups. Anything up to about 20 is common. We had a slightly bigger group this morning that was probably about 35. And uh, there's about 200 that are thought to use the coast between here, right the way down past Aberdeen to the Firth of Forth. So we'll, uh, we'll start to make our way out. If you look just off to the left there, um, a really nice sighting of some little porpoise. Porpoise uh, a lot smaller than dolphins, same family, but a, a lot smaller. You'll quite often just get two or three little surfaces, and then you get a, a slightly longer dive. So you have to be a little bit patient sometimes with porpoise. So they've just dived, and we're waiting for them to come up again now, just to our, our left port, I suppose you call it, would you? Port, yes. <laughs> so as you can imagine, if there's any wind at all, they're actually quite hard to see because they don't show a lot of the body as they surface the little porpoise. Very small, triangular fin. So quite hard to individually identify them as well. Dolphins are, are much, much easier to tell apart and much easier to spot in general. You tend to find that porpoise are, are much less inclined to interact with the boat. Sometimes they will, but uh, generally they're a little bit shyer and uh, a little bit uh, harder to get close to. So when you say the dolphins, Sarah, would interact more with the boat, what they'd swim around, they'd come and have a look, perhaps be inquisitive about yeah, us in the way generally, that we're inquisitive um, about them. Yeah, I mean, not always. Yeah. It depends what they're doing and, and what they're up to, and we, we tend to just sort of approach to a, a distance and then it's up to them. But more often than not, dolphins will sort of engage with you and, and seek out that sort of contact in a way the porpoise don't really do that. And even though we're seeing the smaller uh, porpoise rather than the bottlenose dolphin, there was a real sense of kind of excitement. A little bit of excitement, yeah. I think, I mean, that was nothing compared to if, if we got a glimpse of a dolphin. Um, we actually find it's quite hard sometimes to enthuse people about porpoise. And, and I think it's, it's just for exactly the reasons we were saying there. They don't tend to interact quite the same. People don't feel that perhaps that same connection that they do with dolphins, whereas if dolphins are actually choosing to spend time with you to, to check you out, I think people respond to that, it really strikes a chord. Well, that for me is, is the best bit of the job. Everything from people crying on my shoulder to screams to you know, it's, that's brilliant, you know, you love to see that sort of reaction and an enthusiasm 
Yeah, and you'll get the other ones that, that will get off and, and not really say very much. They'll sort of say thank you and leave, and, and then you'll get an email or a letter saying, you know, it was the most fantastic day of their life, but they're just not as exuberant, you know, on the boat. So mm. you, you do tend to see everything, yeah. The peninsula that makes up Channery Point uh, really dominates this part of the landscape, or the coastscape, if you like. And this narrow area of water between here and uh, and Fort George in the distance, it tends to act as a bit of a funnel. And the tidal conditions here can get fantastically strong, and the dolphins know this, and they use it almost like a supermarket conveyor belt. They stay in the one position, and the tide actually sweeps the food to them. Quite clever, when you think about it. Very clever. Yeah. Um, just sort of sit and wait, and it's gonna, supper's going to come past, breakfast's going to come past. Don't waste energy galloping after your food if you can let the tide actually bring the food to you. It's this intelligence at work. We've come to a place called Channonary Point. It's, uh, it's a spot, as the name suggests, where the land gets thinner and thinner and thinner until it's more of a needle than a point, in fact. And just here on the shingle... There are, I don't know, 20 or 30 people gathered in twos and threes and fours, all eagerly looking out, some with big cameras and lenses, eager for a sight of, uh, of what? Let me ask Charlie Phillips, who's here with possibly the biggest camera of all. <laughs> We're actually just looking for dorsal fins approaching the tip of the peninsula here. Uh, on a day like this, we're really looking for a little puff of breath as the dolphin comes to the surface and maybe the tip of a dorsal fin. If there's any youngsters with them, you might see them having a little scurry about uh, beside mum. We'll just need to keep our eyes open and see what happens. Charlie, I should say, studies them for the Whale and Dolphin Conservation Society. We're having a brief look into their realm and you don't even need to get wet to do it. <laughs> and because of their proximity to the shoreline, where people can almost come in contact with them, I mean, they could be standing on a beach watching dolphins maybe 10, 15 feet away. That's pretty special. And is it silly to suppose that perhaps sometimes they pause here and take a look back and wonder what's going on on the shore in that other domain? They've got pretty good eyesight, uh, both underwater and above the surface, so I'm pretty sure they must look and wonder at what all these blocks of uh, movement are on the shore and uh, what on earth they're doing. (laughs) So what of their behaviour? You're able to watch them as, as intimately as anybody can with a lens of that size, follow them when they surface, when they come up to breathe, when they come up to do whatever else they do at the surface. We see the bottlenose dolphins here really um, A to Z of behaviour, everything from resting to hunting salmon at top speed. So you're able to actually watch what they do and what they do best. And sometimes the behaviour can be difficult to interpret. You have to sometimes just... Don't let your imagination run away with itself. You know, you've got to try and just look dispassionately at what's happening. And, if and you getting see... rid of that. Sorry to interrupt, but getting rid of that sort of passion and b- being dispassionate—it's quite quite hard, isn't it? Really, it's you have to it... put it to one side for a while. While I'm looking through the camera, you know, through the big lens and actually taking the photographs that I need to take, I have to switch off slightly. But I'm still getting excited. There's a twinkle the in your eye. Oh, now yeah, you're talking yeah, about oh, dolphins, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. The day that I come down here with the camera gear and my heart doesn't start racing the minute the dolphins arrive is the day that I'll give up. <laughs> and that is a day you hope doesn't come, or you know that's the day that I, I come. hope isn't going to come. Certainly not time, not anytime soon. Yeah. So feeding on salmon, you say, but what else is, is going within, past within seasons? Yes, uh, we, we actually have a different menu that happens as the seasons go on, and the the dolphins' behaviour changes 
to accommodate this. Uh, at the moment, the salmon run has begun to peter out a little bit, and what's happening, we're getting uh, mackerel and some early herring coming into the area, and this is why we're seeing all the gannets flying about and plunge diving. This is also changing the way that the dolphins are going to hunt. They're now going to hunt in a cooperative uh, manner instead of just a one dolphin, one salmon. Uh, sort of uh, scenario. We're now going to get uh, groups of dolphins corralling shoals of herring and actually leaping into the middle and picking off what they can. It's just amazing to see. And it's perhaps the level of intelligence that is needed for that cooperation that has also got us in, yeah. in, in thrall of these creatures as well. Well, they draw up these plans, they think them up, and they go and they execute them, and they execute them together, and they're cooperating and they're communicating. I mean, what's not to love about that? Mm. And we're only capturing, you know, whether it's on camera or with our own eyes, a, a fleeting glimpse of them, yeah. just at the transition between yeah. the wet world and the, yeah, the slightly the wet and the dry, <laughs> the yeah. dry world. Yeah. And uh, if we could strip away the surface and see beneath fully, I mean, yeah, it would be fabulous. extraordinary, wouldn't yeah. it? I mean, today's technology is allowing us to do this on a greater and greater scale, and we have um, footage available of underwater stuff that's just breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. It lets us lift the lid a little bit and have a look at their lives and just see how complex and how wonderful they are. And we should admire them and love them for that. So do you think it's the case that when then whales are stranded or beached, for example, that we're kind of seeing the end of that animal's narrative? It's life story, and that's why yeah. we, we're so kind of fascinated, in not, not necessarily in a maudling way or, or a sad way, but we're intrigued by it. A genuinely concerned way, mm. uh, which is the reaction that I get from a lot of people. I was involved in the Durness stranding last year, and that was even more pilot whales that were stranded there. About dozens. Oh, well, we estimate there was probably about 77 whales in total. We've never had anything on that scale around the UK before. The recent one that we've had uh, down on the Fife coast uh, is relatively small by comparison. Uh, this one was just the, all you could see on that one sandbar were tails and dorsal fins flailing about all over the place. Quite and that lives with me to this day. Uh, pilot whales themselves are a species that have a habit of, uh, of actually beaching, not just here but in other parts of the world as well. But we need to understand that mechanism perhaps to help them. Again, you've got to look at it um, and try and analyse what's going on and where you've got the emotion of having all these animals alive in front of you on a beach where they shouldn't be, it's difficult to be clinical in that situation. Your emotions can come to the surface. I put on Mr Stoneyface uh, for a while, but uh, if I turn away and nobody's looking at me, you know, believe you me, you fill up because you're having beautiful, sentient animals on the beach suffering in front of you. And sometimes... Veterinary surgeons can do something about it. They can euthanize the animal, but sometimes they can't. And that is really the hard bit, is actually watching an animal dying in front of you and not being able to do anything about it. What would you say to those who would argue, look, um, there's clearly something wrong if they've stranded themselves, uh, let nature take its course, let them die? Mm. Um, there is that, yeah, uh, there is that, and that's been a fairly traditional point of view from the local people for quite a long time. But then there is a growing band of people who are a little bit more proactive than that. And if you can get expert assessment as to whether these animals are actually well enough to put back in the water, then I think we should do something. In the shadow of 
Cromarty Lighthouse. Not much of a shadow because as lighthouses go, it's more of a table lamp or a bedside lamp than a lighthouse. And it houses Aberdeen University's Lighthouse Field Station where Professor Paul Thompson and his colleagues assess the health and the well-being of the marine environment hereabouts. So, Paul, first question, how healthy is it? I guess in terms of how well different dolphin and whale populations are doing, I mean, the honest answer is in many cases we just don't know. There's very few populations where we've been able to even estimate how many animals there are in the first place, let alone how that's changed over the years. And the Moriforth bottlenose dolphins is one population where we have done that. And in that case, actually, they're doing better than we thought they were a few years ago. For some of these other species, uh, like pilot whales and some of the other dolphins that spend more of their time offshore, we've got some sort of snapshot estimates for the North Sea, one big international survey done, uh, well, a couple of them every 10 years. But, of course, that doesn't tell you a whole lot about changes. We know there's, a, for example, a lot more porpoises out there than people thought at one point, maybe sort of three, 400,000, and you do find porpoises all over the place and large populations of some of those other species, like common dolphins, white-beaked dolphins. But how that's changing, who knows? And how we interpret beachings, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you might expect more animals pitching up on the beach if there's lots of them out there in the first place. We know that dolphins and whales have been turning up dead on beaches for as long as people go back recording these things. We don't know why it happens. Sometimes uh, in recent years, it has been associated with, for example, Navy exercises, but it's something that also occurs naturally without all these um, underwater noises. And in the past, of course, people would, yes, they would have been very emotive about it, but it's not long ago in the Western Isles and uh, the Northern Isles that everyone would be very excited about it, but because they could go out and get a good supply of meat and blubber for the winter stores. And uh, there are postcards of beaching to pilot whales in Orkney just before the First World War where people were out there carving them up. Nature's bounty. Absolutely, yes. And, and that goes back to the fact that, of course, the law states that if it's a large whale, then it's the Crown who has first dibs on it and... Uh, and that's why these strandings have been reported to the Coast Guard for the last few, well, last hundred years. So as far as the bottlenose is concerned, a population that you do know a lot about, do you know from your population studies why it's uh, holding level or possibly even growing? And uh, that seems to be running counter to what everybody had supposed. The quick answer is no. <laughs> it's hard enough to know whether populations are going up or down, even harder to understand what factors are driving those, those changes, whether it's natural variation in foods, something that we're doing with the environment in the past, hunting, maybe bycatch in fisheries, for example. When you first encounter the animal and you've caught it, I mean, the bottlenose dolphins, one of the things we don't have a good idea of is exactly how big they are. So that constrains our ability to work out how much food they need. And so that's the kind of information you need to see whether there's enough food out there. And the answers to these questions, some answers you know, uh, you recognise, <laughs> many you don't know yet, but it's important to find as many answers as possible from a conservation point of view. This is a, a special area of conservation. Mm. There are some who would like it to have much higher levels of protection as a marine conservation area so i think yes obviously the more the more information you have about the life history and the the food requirements of these animals the easier it is to think about methods by which we can help protect their environment so that it, it maximizes their opportunities to have a good sustainable population but at the same time i think one of the things that conservationists and particularly marine conservationists are recognizing is that we shouldn't let the lack of that information stop us coming forward with uh, sensible mitigation and management measures. So there's much more of an emphasis now on the precautionary approach, trying to minimise potential effects, even though it hasn't been demonstrated that there's necessarily a big problem. 
we started the programme talking about this kind of emotional pull that uh, these mammals seem to have on us non-scientific types. Do you understand that? Uh, and and, and I, I mean, not in a scientific way. Do they exert some kind of pull on you? I mean, perhaps you wouldn't have got into the business if that wasn't the case in the first place. It's an animal that's not running away from you. Mm. And I, I remember sort of sometimes with uh, stoats and weasels, if you get a really curious weasel that's coming up towards you. I mean, that's just the same kind of experience, I think. But it's actually much more difficult to arrange that for lots of people. Yeah. <laughs> and actually the fact that uh, you can go out and uh, see dolphins so easily, then more people get to experience that. And all these years later, uh, do you still have that quickening of the pulse and that... Uh, sort of sharpening of the breath when you see one service, when you do get a glimpse of them and okay it poses all those questions that you haven't yet answered but there must be something in there that still gets you going there is I think actually for me that experience isn't so very different from the same kind of kick I get out of uh, watching harbour seals on the beach or going and sneaking up on one of the former nests and uh, and seeing a bird that I've been yeah, seeing there at the nest for the last 10 15 years so I think for us there's that added connection that not only is it a great experience to be watching wildlife like that but these are individuals that we've been working with actually in some cases for 20 years or more and the fact that you know so much about them and yet there's so much more to be known is really exciting Zephyr Talisman G you're going to have to explain what all these names are we're down on the foreshore in Cromarty and sitting next to me is Barbara Cheney, a research fellow at Aberdeen University Lighthouse Field Station. Guinness, now there's a name to conjure with. Make sense of these mystery names for me, would you? So we study the local bottlenose dolphin population here and um, we can recognise the individual dolphins from the natural marks on their dorsal fin. We number every single dolphin, but we also try and give them a name to kind of make it easier to recognise them. So we often try and give them a name that's linked to some of those marks on their fin and then sometimes there's just some random fun names thrown in there as well. So here's a test for you. Sorry to do this. (laughs) I'm covering up the name of this dolphin and I want you to tell me the name of the dolphin from the marks here on the fin because you can presumably tell who's who from the little nicks and the scratches on the dorsal fin is it? Dorsal fin dorsal, on, the, right. on the back on the back yes yeah. so yeah so actually that's quite an easy one you've is given it? me so um, that's a, a well known dolphin called sailfin who's number 8 um, and he's a You're big right? adult male <laughs> <laughs> he's got a great the probably the biggest fin that I've seen ever um, on a bottlenose dolphin and and some really great big nicks that make him really easy to spot so even out on the water I can spot him from a distance okay I'm going to try one more close your eyes for a minute not looking (laughs) I bet you can't get that one Funnily enough, I can't remember his name. I'm a bit better with the numbers. So that's number 129. Um, we don't see him quite so often. Um, right. We think he's a male um, because he's never been seen with a calf, but we're not, not actually sure. It's quite hard to recognise the males. But we see him probably maybe just once or twice a year compared to Sailfin, where we would see probably more like 10 to 15 times a year. So I know him a little bit better. And uh, there we are, Gerda, oh, Gerda. Is, is, is his name. But exactly. just looking here at the fin, it looks like a a sort of topographical map, doesn't it? It really uh, sort of quite deeply indented and there's sort of rough skin, I suppose you'd describe it as there, needs to exfoliate. But look look at (laughs) at all that sort of... Is is that acquired in battle, in in play? 
No, so those are what we call skin lesions and we're not exactly sure what they are because obviously it's very difficult to get samples of them but a, a lot of the dolphins here actually most of the population have there and they seem to be either um, bacterial or, or fungal or viral infections and all bottomless dolphin populations have them um, it's maybe like us having eczema or spots but actually we don't know why um, there's so much of it here um, so other places you would see a few dolphins have it whereas as here the majority of the population actually have it. But presumably baby dolphins all look the same in the sense they haven't acquired tooth rake marks and and the rough and tumble of life hasn't yet made their dorsal fins unique to them. Yeah, so some of the even some of the older dolphins actually are, are easier to identify than others. Not all of them have nicks or scratches on them. And, and yes, the young dolphins are, are very difficult to follow. But they stay with their mums for about three to six years. And certainly in the early part of their lives, they have very close association with the mums. So we can follow them that way. And then we hope they'll get a few marks um, before they leave their mums and go off on their own. What you're telling me, Barbara, is you know the ruffians better better than the rest. (laughs) The genteel dolphins are unknown to you. Yes, that's probably very true. (laughs) This is a ruffian, isn't it? Look at the... Are are these tooth marks here? It looks uh, almost as if uh, someone's raked a comb down the the base of the dorsal fin here Mm -hmm. and left... uh, very deep scratch marks, striations. The marks there are from the teeth of, of other dolphins and we've been able to tell that because we can measure the distance between the marks on the fin and then measure the distance uh, between the teeth of the dolphins. And actually different species of dolphin have different distances between their teeth, so that's why we, we know there are other bottlenose dolphins that are actually making those kind of exactly rakes on the, the fin. People thrill, don't they, at these species more than perhaps other wildlife, and I wonder whether you know the answer to that, working with them so closely. Perhaps that's what got you into it in the first place, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think um, my dad's actually a, a master mariner and a, a captain on, on oil tankers, and I used to go out with him, and we used to see quite a lot of different um, kind of cetacean, whale and dolphin species, and it's just um, seeing them leap through the air and, and being this very playful and fun animals, and certainly as I got older, I guess what interests me is all these questions we aren't able to answer. They spend most of their lives under the water, and we see them so rarely um, when they surface to actually be able to find out a little bit more about them they're quite mysterious and intriguing that to me and maybe to other people is is really interesting as well we understand a little bit more about how dolphins socialize with each other are very social animals and we call it a fission fusion society um, in bottlenose dolphins they actually mix and match a lot um, so the groups are constantly changing the individuals are constantly hanging out with different animals but actually as we begin to study these animals more and see the mums and calves together and, and see how many calves they've had we can actually see actually it's probably a bit more complicated than that and that you actually do see a few family groups spending time together and you'll see when get a bit older leaving their mums but actually coming back later and spending time with them so although first of all we thought we'd understood their social structure the more we study them the more we're actually learning I know you scientists get rather sniffy when we anthropomorphise these uh, dolphins, but here you are giving them all names. You can't help yourself, can you, really? We can't help ourselves as, yeah. as another warm-blooded creature. It is very difficult not to put human feelings onto the animals, especially when you spend so much time either out on a boat with them or, or for myself, looking at lots of pictures of them. Mm. Um, you know, you do get to uh, know lots about them. We, You know, some um, animals, we know how many calves they've had. We've been able to follow the calves, and they've had their own calves as well. Um, so Yes, it's really hard not to do that. So back at Shamanry Point and the last couple of the evening who are leaving as the point gets smaller and smaller as the tide comes in. Dedicated because that just that glimpse even is I mean, worth was, waiting for. It was a quick glimpse as well. There's only two. 
they only surfaced about three or four times. They did, and it was goosebumps, definitely. Mm-hmm. And it was this <gasps> yeah, shock. shock. <laughs> You've been waiting over an hour, and then you suddenly get a quick glimpse. Yeah, yes. yeah. And yes, goosebumps in a way that you don't perhaps get with other species? I think so, yeah. I think you tend to take a, a lot of species for, for granted, granted, even though being a wildlife photographer, you want to get that special shot. But I think with the dolphins, as I say, you don't tend to come in contact that often. And such as a place like this, I mean, it's been special. <laughs> <laughs> and if we look behind us, we can see the rain's coming. Ooh. Never far away, <laughs> is it? But, hey, yeah. what, a, what a special end to a special day for yeah, you. absolutely. That just draws you. I don't think there's any real answer to it, is there? No. I also think it's a challenge. Look how big the ocean is. Mm. And the chance of you actually seeing something, such as Fairly a dolphin, close. at yeah. close proximity. I think it's just the actual challenge of, mm-hmm. you know, wow. What, there's almost a bit of a lottery. Yes, I think it is. And when you win, it feels Absolutely. almost as good as winning the good. Absolutely. Euro million. I'll let you know. <laughs> good luck.